I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Welcome to episode 63 of The Overcast, the Seattle Times weekly politics podcast. We're recording again this week from the Seattle studios of KNKX 88.5 Public Radio. This week, we're taking a look at some of our top local political stories of 2017, as judged by us. Yes, we're doing a look back and a look forward, uh, like every other uh, podcast and radio show. Right, but ours is the best. We're going to look at 2018 and some of the stories we think we might be, and all of us might be, uh, looking into in 2018. Of course, that'll be completely upended, probably, because the news never stops. All right, so uh, let's start with our look back, and what's our first top story of the past year of 2017. Well, uh, we want to look back to the very beginning of 2017. As you may remember, we'll set the scene. Donald Trump gets elected. You know, in in liberal Democratic Seattle, there's a great wave of depression and anger. We have the the marching on the streets and fear. You know, we have people marching in the streets, the Women's March. Uh, Pretty soon after that, Donald Trump sort of follows through on a campaign promise and and institutes uh, a, a travel ban on people from six or seven mostly Muslim majority countries. Right. And 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 lo, riding into the picture is who? Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson, who has his staff work dun, you know, dun, dun, dun. You know, overtime uh, through the weekend into the night because he he is he wants to be the first to challenge President Donald Trump's travel ban. And he did. I think it was the following Monday. You know, after a weekend, we should remember of chaos at SeaTac Airport. The first travel ban was rolled out in a fashion that even even right, the people was, who support it said this is this is just crazy. The way right, it's there was out. confusion. People took the light rail down to to protest. Uh, police were down there. It was a uh, it was quite a scene. Families didn't know if their you know family members getting on planes in other countries were going to you know be able to 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 get on the planes or get off them or, or what. So anyway, Bob Ferguson. Washington's Democratic Attorney General uh, announced his uh, plans to challenge the travel ban. He did file that challenge in federal court, and it wasn't too long after that that Judge James Robart in Seattle issued a an injunction, a national injunction, halting the the uh, enforcement of this travel ban. It was kind of a big shocking moment. It was one that was cheered by you know Democrats in Washington State. It a was, first big setback for President Trump and. And he, I think, tweeted afterwards calling Robart the so-called judge. This so-called judge. You know, Robart got a lot of blowback, of course, from Trump supporters. People said it was outrageous that the president, you know, actually has a lot of authority to regulate uh, who comes into the country and not. Nevertheless, you know, on the law, Judge Robart said, no, that he he overstepped his bounds and he issued a, an injunction temporarily halting this on a nationwide basis. A lot has happened since then. Right. That was a prelude of what was to come in terms of uh, Bob Ferguson and Washington State in general, Jay Inslee as well, sort of uh, gaining national promise, pro, uh, prominence as uh, anti-Trump. Right. The West Coast in general has, has viewed itself, you know, the, the West Coast is dominated by Democrats, of course. You know, there are very few statewide elected Republicans on the West Coast anymore. And, and so, Ferguson has yeah. filed how many lawsuits at this point against the Trump administration? Right. And at this point, um, you know, Ferguson, I think he's up to, if if not 20, he's he's very near 20 lawsuits against the Trump administration. And, you know, so he is, uh, 
positioning himself as an anti-Trump force that's very popular among Democrats, of course, in Washington state. Of course, Bob Ferguson is thought of as somebody who might run for governor in 2020. Jay Inslee, we should say, also has chimed in as an anti-Trump figure and has gotten a lot of national press, and it's led to speculation that he might be positioning himself to run for president or maybe, you know, be on a ticket as vice as a vice presidential possibility in 2020. All right, let's move on to a, a second big story of 2017, which is a continuing story from previous years, but Seattle's ongoing homelessness crisis, homelessness-related cha- challenges. Back in 2015, Mayor Ed Murray, then Mayor Ed Murray, and King County Executive Dow Constantine declared uh, states of emergency in the city and the county over homelessness. You know, but but the problem, uh, the the issue, and people suffering out there on the street, it hasn't gotten any any better. If anything, it's gotten worse. Yeah, this has stayed top top of mind. I think throughout the city, and not just Seattle, of course. This is a regional problem. It's a national problem. But West it's Coast the- problem. There's a recent AP story about all the big the big West Coast cities uh, dealing with this. And it's particularly acute in in high cost cities like Seattle. You've seen the same thing in San Francisco, other areas where you've got an immense concentration of wealth and high tech salaries, and yet streets, you know, filled with people who don't really have any other options. So, Dan, remind us, you know, some of the touch points in in the last year. Like you said, this is an ongoing story, but we had a new homeless count. What did that show? Yeah, so in January, uh, every year in, in, in most communities, including Seattle King County, there are these point-in-time homeless counts. Uh, they're also called one-night counts where people, volunteers fan out and count people sleeping in doorways and under bridges and in cars. And, uh, there was a some new methods for the count this January, a night in January, where they're going to cover more ground and be more uh, thorough about their count. It's always an estimate, but this year's count, the numbers were released later on in the year. Uh, more than eleven thousand six hundred people were tallied, uh, with five thousand four hundred and eighty-five of them found to be living on the streets in motor vehicles and tent encampments. Uh, you know, others are in shelters or yeah. transitional housing. That was in King County. That was in King County as a whole with, you know, obviously the numbers in Seattle made up uh, a big percentage of that overall. And the city has been trying to take action to to do more to, to help people. Of course, you know, the, the, there's been a big controversy over homeless encampments, you know, unauthorized homeless encampments throughout the city. There's been a big controversy that spilled over into the, you know, the political races over the last year over homeless, you know, sweeps of those camps and whether those should be conducted or how they should be conducted. The city also opened a new navigation center over the summer, right? Dan, what does that do? Yeah, so, uh, you know, in trying to address homelessness, the city is trying a number of things, but one of them uh, that was a big ticket item was to open what's called a navigation center built on a model in San Francisco. This is a low barrier, 24-7 homeless shelter uh, that's designed in theory to take uh, hard cases, people in encampments who don't want to go into traditional sh- mats on the floor shelters to bring those folks in and then work with them, uh, their is- their issues, get them uh, the, the sort of uh, uh, social work they need and then get them into permanent housing. Uh, Seattle opened its first one of these special navigation centers in July after some delays. Uh, to some extent, it's working and getting people off the street, but they're having a really hard time then getting people into housing because there's not always housing to get people into. Our colleagues uh, on Project Homeless uh, recently wrote a story about about that challenge. And then moving on to the 
the ongoing issue with encampments and sweeps, you know, like you said, this spilled into the mayoral uh, election, which we're going to talk about a bit in a second, where we had our two general election candidates, Jenny Durkin and Carrie Moon. One of the biggest differences between them was Moon was very much uh, repeating that line of stop the sweeps. We need to stop uh, generally our, our policy of removing and evicting people from street homeless encampments. Jenny Durkin was saying, we need to do it with compassion and, and try to do it in a way that helps people, but we can't let people live uh, in some of the conditions that they're living in. It's too dangerous. There are public health health risks, et cetera. And, of course, Durkin didn't like really like the term sweeps. There was a lot of debate over what. You know, yeah, what and, and again, our Project Homeless team recently did a really interesting story on well, what do those quote-unquote sweeps look like now, uh, uh, you know, what you know, what kind of services are provided? What kind of role do the police officers have, et what cetera? Kind of, what kind of outreach is done to the people who, who are being asked to move? And then, you know, just very briefly, homelessness was a big part of budget talks as the city council just last month uh, went through making changes to the budget that had been proposed from the, uh, from the mayor's office. And uh, there was a big argument about, does the city need more money? For, for homelessness. There's just a, a new RFP, a request for proposals that went out and city allocated money in a new way to homeless service providers saying it's going to hold them accountable based on their performance. So getting people into housing, uh, the city council said that might not be enough. We, some on the city council wanted more money and they wanted to raise that with a, a, a tax on, on larger businesses that narrowly, narrowly failed uh, as an effort. And, you know, we should say that some of these efforts to open the navigation center and, um, you know, find new, new ways to, to uh, help, help the homeless and maybe provide more funding were, were sort of launched by Mayor Ed Murray. But Mayor Ed Murray, as we all know, didn't get a chance to really, he's not going to get a chance to follow through on those in, in the coming years. And that's one of the biggest stories of the year, too. Of course, the fall of Ed Murray. Let's look back. And, you know, in April, it looked like Ed Murray was headed to re-election for a second term. He'd been a Democratic state senator. He had been a, a leader in gay rights. He championed the state's gay rights law. You know, he came in as mayor and was trying to be a progressive champion, right, Dan? He passed the, helped pass the $15 minimum. Yeah, wage. in his first year, 2014, uh, he helped broker a, a compromise on how to set Seattle on a path to raise its minimum wage to $15 an hour. And that was big news across the country. Other cities have followed, but Seattle was first to, to start going towards 15. Another sort of important piece of his his early years or his first couple of years in office was championing tax increases that the voters backed him on to raise money for more bus service, for uh, safe routes to schools, for uh, uh, subsidized preschool, for affordable housing, etc. So he seemed very popular. That all changed in April when um, a man named Delvon Heckard, a Kent man, filed a lawsuit in King County Superior Court. Of course, you you know, people remember this. I think our listeners all, all remember this. He he alleged that Ed Murray had sexually abused him when uh, Heckard was a teen years ago. He was a he'd been a, an addict. He's he's now been in recovery, but he filed this very explosive lawsuit leveling his charges. At the same time, you know, the Seattle Times we reported on two other men who had made similar allegations dating back decades: Lloyd Anderson and uh, Jeff Simpson, who Jeff Simpson actually had been Ed Murray's foster son in Portland back in the 1980s. You know, Ed Murray fought back really hard against these charges. To this day, he says they're false. But after a fourth man came forward, he halted his re-election campaign in May. That was a, a very big deal. 
Dan, I think you were at the press conference where he announced it. Yeah, it was a it. dramatic moment. Uh, Ed Murray held a, uh, made, basically made a speech to say that he wasn't going to continue running for mayor. He was going to leave city government at the end of his term. He chose this location, the beach house at, at Alki Beach in the neighborhood where he spent much of his childhood in West Seattle. It was a really dramatic moment in, this, in, in Seattle politics. And, you know, for, for a while, it, it seemed like Ed Murray, I mean, he said, I'm, I'm not going to run again because it's a distraction, but I'm innocent and it's unfair and I'm going to fight these charges and I am not going to resign. He was very insistent about that. Um, I think the, you know, the narrative kind of started to flip on him in July when we published documents that we unearthed down in Oregon showing that, you know, there was a child foster care, child welfare investigation in Oregon in the 1980s that found the child welfare investigator found, you know, it was an administrative finding that, you know, that they believed that Ed Murray had indeed, you know, abused his foster son, Jeff Simpson. That was a pretty devastating blow. There, there started to be some city council members calling for his resignation, but it never really took off to the point. I mean, the council never really asked that Ed Murray step down, right? No, not even close. I mean, the closest they came was Councilmember uh, M. Lorena Gonzalez sort of raising the question of saying, you know, I, I think the mayor should consider stepping down and asking, starting the ball rolling on on the council planning for that potential eventuality. But the council didn't, never took any action uh, as a body on that. And she got blowback. I mean, Councilmember Sally Bagshaw said, oh, I, don't, I hope we're not going to grandstand, basically. Councilmember Bruce Harrell, council president, said, well, you know, I don't know what I was doing 30 or 40 years ago. They didn't want us, they wanted to stay away from this and just kind of hoped that Ed Murray could get through the remainder of his term and they didn't have to think about it and they could go on with city business. That all ended in September when Fifth Accuser came forward, distant cousin of Ed Murray's. You know, that afternoon, the day that story broke, Ed Murray resigned. This is a colossal upheaval in Seattle politics. I mean, the, the basic politics hasn't changed, right? I mean, it's a progressive city. Ed Murray was a progressive liberal mayor. The city continues that way, but as a politician, Ed Murray, you know, he was done, and I think we're going to talk about yeah. And there was a lot of that. there was a lot of upheaval with, uh, you know, just in the couple of weeks there after his resignation for logistical reasons, we had two more mayors in quick succession. Bruce Harrell was mayor for a couple of days, the city council president, because that was an automatic, you know, step in uh, according to the city charter, and then. Councilmember Tim Burgess ended up being appointed to be the, the actual temporary mayor uh, between Ed Murray's resignation and uh, and a new mayor, right. elected mayor, taking over. And because, you know, Ed Murray resigned the way he did, the new mayor took over this year, Jenny Durkin. We're going to talk about the mayor's race in a second. But, you know, uh, we had four mayors in one year in Seattle. That's never happened. It's unprecedented. You know, Seattle has turned on a lot of mayors. They don't, you know, sometimes they get turned on because of a snowstorm or because of a, of a riot. Nothing quite like what happened to Ed Murray, though. Right. Huge story. And that brings us to, I think, our, our next big one is the mayoral election. It could have been earlier in the year. It looked like it might be not the most exciting mayoral election. Uh, Ed Murray did have, uh, you know, Nikita Oliver, a, uh, a social worker and uh, activist as a as a challenger early on before any of these allegations came out. So there was going to be some kind of a fight there for sure, and there may have been other people, but but it looked like he you know he was just well positioned to to win re-election, and everything changed, and then all of a sudden we ended up with 
former Mayor Mike McGinn jumping in, with uh, Durkin jumping in, the former U.S. attorney, with uh, state lawmaker Justin Farrell, state lawmaker Bob Hasegawa. I mean, and we ended up with 21 people on the on the August primary ballot. Yeah, a lot of these people, you know, they weren't going to, you know, Nikita Oliver had the distinction of she had, she had challenged Murray before any of these allegations came out. These other folks were a little more, a lot of them were part of the political establishment and were, were sort of politely not going to challenge Ed Murray, you know, what would have been the point, they probably thought. But once there was blood in the water, you know, they realized that he was wounded, he was probably going to not run, and, and they stepped in very quickly. So the, the primary was pretty amazing, 21 people, kind of a compressed time period for a lot of people to compete. And as we know, you know, in the end, Carrie Moon, who was sort of known as a waterfront activist, made it through along with Jenny Durkin. Yeah, and the, I mean, the primary was exhausting to cover from a reporting perspective because there were so many candidates and there were six, you know, frontrunner candidates who, you know, really felt like they had a good shot and had some level of, of public recognition and, and had been involved. Um, Nikita Oliver uh, had sort of a grassroots m- uh, movement behind her. She was the candidate of a new Seattle People's Party uh, and was talking about a lot about uh, representing um, people with less money, representing uh, people of color in the city, young people. And those weren't the only people who supported her, but those issues, you know, really galvanized folks behind her uh, in a different way than usual. And she uh, narrowly uh, finished third, uh, just a bit behind Carrie Moon. Yeah, we should say, you know, it was the biggest spenders in this race that got through the primary, Durkin and Moon. It was a big shock to me anyway, and maybe maybe I should have seen this coming, but how, how poorly Mike McGinn did. He came in sixth and he had just been mayor not too long ago. So then, you know, we moved on to the general election. We don't need to, we just came through that. People remember it. I don't think we need to go into it too deeply, but in the end, Jenny Durkin, who really sort of carried the progressive, but establishment side of Seattle politics, that it was really the same coalition, including many of the same literal people that had supported Ed Murray, supported her she wound up winning pretty handily, right? Yeah, I mean, for a Seattle city election, for a Seattle mayoral election, you know, her win was was very strong uh, in terms of the point spread. I mean, Seattle mayor elections tend to be close, you know, a couple of points, I think, separating the candidates. This was a little bit bigger. Yeah. Uh, and, and on election, I especially, it narrowed a little bit in later days as more ballots were counted. But the election night um, uh, tally was really strong for Durkin. The result was pretty apparent right away. Of course, you know, Durkin had a big money advantage in the general, especially when you added up the uh, the sort of political action committees, the independent spending by business groups and to some extent labor groups too. Carrie Moon, we remember, and we've I talked about on this podcast, I think, you know, put a lot of her own personal wealth into her campaign. Beyond that, she didn't really have a lot of donors. And uh, so, you know, moving on, our, our fifth and uh, final, I guess, top story that we picked. Again, the list, maybe not comprehensive. You can uh, holler at us if you think we missed something. Dave Reichert, the congressman from the 8th District on the east side, announcing that he's not going to run for re-election in 2018. Democrats have made runs at Dave Reichert for years, but that district had gotten a little more Republican in a, in a round of redistricting. So when he sort of surprisingly decided, announced that he was going to step aside, it immediately became and will be a top pickup chance for the Democrats in 2018. Yeah, people naturally are going to be looking at that district, right, Jim? And and you said it was somewhat surprising. Why did he do it? Did it shock you? or The timing shocked me a little bit because I had literally just been reaching out to his campaign and saying, you know, I just want to make sure, you know, that he's running. And they, they had sort of assured me that, oh, yeah, for sure, he's running. 
But that's the thing that politicians do and campaigns will do. They'll say, he's running as of right this moment. And then, you know, clearly he was making plans that he, he decided he didn't want to run anymore. He wanted to hang it up. You know, he'd been there many years. He, he was a known as sort of a moderate Republican. He tried to walk that line anyway or present that image and, and did so in some of his votes. He was not a big fan of Donald Trump at all. And I think that I don't think that he relished the, 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 uh, the prospect of running in 2018 where the question in, a lot, in every congressional race is going to be about Donald Trump's agenda. And do you support it? Do you support his personal conduct? What do you make of the Mueller investigation? What do you make of, you know, his agenda? Right. And that brings us to now that with Reichert out in that district and in other districts across the country, uh, we're gonna, maybe we can talk about Spokane uh, over there in eastern Washington. You know, is there going to be uh, an, an anti-Trump wave of Democrats winning House seats? Um, and are we going to see that manifested here in our state? I mean, it sure looks like that's a possibility at this point. And this is, you know, I guess we're shifting to our look ahead and we're going to look at a few of the stories that we'll be watching in the new year. Certainly, the 8th District, as soon as Reichert announced his retirement, all the national prognosticators said this becomes one of the top pickup opportunities, you know, for Democrats. Already, I had written about this, there were a bunch of Democrats who were lining up to run against Reichert. You know, a lot of people were moved to run for office who never thought about it before, including a lot of women, um, by what's been happening with Donald Trump's presidency. And so they were already queuing up to run. And then when he stepped out, everybody put the spotlight on this race. I think we're going to see a lot of money possibly spent in the race. And, it, you know, we've seen congressional polling, the gen- generic ballot polling that shows Democrats having a 15 or 18 or 20 point advantage. And who's the, bi- the big name Democrat in that race or, or Democrats, plural? Well, that's, I mean, it's hard to say there's no, I wouldn't say there's a big name at all on the Democratic side. So, you know, maybe generic advantage is sort of uh, apt at this point, but so there are some candidates who've sort of emerged as the top possible front runners, including Kim Schreier. She's a uh, pediatrician from Sammamish. I think she works in Issaquah, and and she she was endorsed by Emily's List and has picked up a lot of support. You know, I think that the Democrats see her as a candidate who could talk about healthcare policy with people concerned about the Affordable Care Act. You've also got Jason Ritterizer, who's a former prosecutor in the mix. Mona Das, who's a uh, a mortgage business owner. And, um, you know, got some other people, a young guy named Braden Olson, who has an, an interesting background. Um, Google him. Look at cltimes.com. We've written about his background. Um, you know, while the, while the Democrats have this sort of generic Democrat issue, which can be an advantage and disadvantage. Uh, Dino Rossi. You've got Dino Rossi, and he's very well known in this state. You know, well known for losing a lot of statewide elections, but a big, very popular figure, at least in the past, among the Republican base. He's come out of the gate strong. He's raised a lot of money. He's going to be very formidable. And if there's not a wave type of year, I mean, I, I, I could see how he very easily could, could win this race. And he might even be able to hold off sort of a minor wave, just a, you know, a splashing wave in that district, which has a lot of conservative voters. And what about over in Spokane? Yeah, I mean, if the wave gets big enough, you've got Kathy McMorris-Rogers, the representative from Eastern Washington, the highest ranking woman in the House Republican caucus, very much a, a Paul Ryan loyalist. She's being challenged by Lisa Brown, who's a former state legislator. She was a, a chancellor at WSU Spokane. She's gotten some credit for help landing the medical school over there. She's, she's a good candidate. She's a, she's a good challenger. That district is very red. Um, it hasn't gone, you know, it's been, it's been Republican since George Nethercutt beat Tom Foley years ago. So it would be really extraordinary if 
if it does flip, but this there is a possibility that it could flip in 2018. So if that's one top story to look for in 2018, those midterm elections, uh, what what's another one? Well, here in Seattle, up zones are going to be uh, a big deal at Seattle City Hall with the Seattle City Council. There's going to be a lot of talk about that. And what does that mean, Dan? I mean, up zones, you know, it's Sounds boring, but if you live in Seattle, you're seeing the buildings get bigger. You're seeing a lot more neighbors. W- where are we going to have these? What does it mean? What kind of you know new building heights or more density you know are they looking at specifically? Basically, the idea is that a few years ago, the city said, partly to deal with our affordable housing and our housing crisis, we're going to do something that they're calling mandatory housing affordability. It's sort of a deal between the city and developers. So the city is upzoning neighborhoods all across uh, all across the city. That means allowing developers to build bigger and taller. And then in exchange for that, the developers have to either include some affordable housing in their projects or pay money to the city so the city can give that money to nonprofit developers who are going to build affordable housing. And the city in this last year, they upzoned the university district downtown and South Lake Union, the Chinatown International District, uptown, also known as Lower Queen Anne, and a couple of intersections in the Central District. And those uh, pretty much sailed through the Seattle City Council. I mean, there was some talk about, is this a good idea? Uh, is there going to be displacement with more building uh, that is, that, that's encouraged by these up zones? But generally, those are sort of the more dense urban parts of the city already. Uh, Coming up is now the city in 2018. The mayor's office has sent the city council legislation to upzone 27 additional neighborhoods, urban villages all across Seattle. So, you know, you're talking about Northgate. You're talking about Rainier Beach. You're talking about a couple different neighborhoods in West Seattle, about South Park, about uh, Magnolia, 27 of these. Are these, you know, the big the big battle or debate and controversy in Seattle, some of it anyway, has been about these single-family home neighborhoods. A lot of the city's still zoned for that. There's a there's a housing shortage. There's a, a rental crisis. Are, are we going to see more single-family neighborhoods allowing a more mixed use of housing, or is it all just concentrated in the areas that already are multifamily? It's mostly concentrated in the areas that are already multifamily. And then around the edges of those and along some transit lines, these up zones would creep into and change some single family areas. But a small percentage of the single family areas across the whole city would be changed under this plan. Even so, uh, there's going to be a lot of talk about whether this is being done the right way. You know, there are pluses and benefits to more development. You know, with this development, with this program they've set up, the city's going to get money or create affordable housing, but also more development can can, can push people out. I think a lot of people who've lived here for a long time uh, not to date myself like me, uh, would say, oh, gosh, finally, there's going to be some redevelopment in Seattle. You know, I say that jokingly. It seems like there's cranes everywhere, but it's it's only going to expand. I mean, the city's been growing like, like crazy. Obviously, a lot of jobs here. Yeah, I mean, the city is adding a record number of new housing units, but not as many as the number of people moving here. So, All right, let's get, move from Seattle and look down south to Olympia. You know, we had a big a big development in the last year, too. We mentioned kind of the national elections. We've talked about the midterms. But Governor Jansley and the Democrats finally have what they have they have wanted for so long. They have unified Democratic majorities in Olympia for the first time in a while. Got Jansley in the governor's office. The Democrats have had the House for a while, and they added the Senate because of a special election this last year. So the question is going to be, and what we're going to be watching the new year is, 
And what everybody's going to be watching is how are they going to use it? There's a lot of pressure in the Democratic base, you know, to use this new majority to do some bold things that Democrats want. Um, Jane'sley has signaled he's going to make another run at it, a carbon tax or carbon pricing of some kind. You know, labor unions are looking at, I think, I mean, we're not, I'm not really 100% sure on the agenda, but they've been looking at things like portable benefits for workers. They want to, you know, extend more protection to workers in the gig economy. There'll probably be another push for additional gun, gun regulations. What about capital gains or income tax? That's something in Seattle uh, progressives talk about. Uh, the city and the state really needing, and now there's a Democratic majority in Olympia. Is there any chance of that happening? Well, it's interesting, you know, and, and the Republicans talked about it a lot, too, as, as a warning. Um, it, it was something that they've campaigned on, and it didn't, it didn't work in that 45th district special election. There were too many headwinds, I think, for the Republicans in that. But interestingly, Jay Inslee just pr- proposed his supplemental budget for next year, and he did not, for the first time in a while, propose a capital gains tax which is a tax, you know, on a, on a certain type of income. I thought that was interesting. Now, that doesn't mean that he's done with it. I mean, I think he still supports that, and, and, and labor groups and Democrats generally support that. But maybe going into the 2018 elections, they don't want it to be front and center. So we'll see. I mean, that's going to be – it's going to be interesting. You know, the Democrats have majorities in Olympia, but they don't have big majorities. So I think there's a limit maybe to the dreams of some of the progressive wings of the Democratic Party on how far they can go. Okay, and so returning to the Trump administration, you know, Donald Trump has been president for almost a year, but uh, he hasn't filled out a lot of the regional posts in his administration that will be sort of directing things on the ground in our area. Do you think that that's going to be one of our big stories in the coming year? Yeah, on on, the, on that level, you know, I think obviously a big story is just going to be the continuing sort of how how that how, how Donald Trump's presidency affects people throughout our region, things like immigration, DACA and things like that. But also on a very specific level, like you said, the Trump administration has been a little slow in filling out, you know, the federal bureaucracy. I mean, he still hasn't appointed, appointed yet a U.S. attorney for Western Washington. There are some federal judge vacancies. There are some administrative level posts that I think will continue to move out at um, roll out at regional agencies like the EPA, HUD, places like that. So, you know, I'm going to be watching and interested in, in, in how that happens. You know, you've seen this sort of tension in federal agencies who, who are now being um, administered by Trump appointees who don't necessarily, you know, who, who don't in many cases support the traditional mission of that agency or at least view it in a, in a much different way. Yeah, so we'll keep an eye on that, and it'll be interesting to see as those appointments are made and as we cover them whether that generates uh, some energy from from the anti-Trump. I predict. Base. I predict it will generate okay. energy from the anti-Trump. You base. heard it here and, first, and I predict <laughs> it will generate potentially more lawsuits from Bob Ferguson there and others. We can predict it. So you know, while while you know Dan, while the Trump administration is of course filling out its its. Uh, bureaucracy. Uh, the mayor, the new mayor we talked about, Jeannie Durkin, also still has work to do, and she's going to be making big changes at City Hall. Some, yeah, some I of the mean, most important decisions for any mayor she's going to be making. Run, run those down for me. Sure. I mean, you know, there's always turnover, of course, when a new mayoral administration comes in, just like with the president. It's just what happens. Uh, but in quick succession here, uh, in recent weeks, uh, after Jeannie Durkin has taken over, you know, we've seen that there are going to be some big vacancies uh, in in Seattle city government. A police chief, Kathleen O'Toole, who we talked to about this recently on the podcast, is stepping down at the end of the year. So Durkin is going to have to do a national search and find a new 
police chief. That's huge, especially with the uh, the city still under a federal consent decree uh, on police reform. I always find it interesting. I've covered a few of these police chief searches, and there's always this, I don't know, question. They always do national search, but there's always a question of, you know, at, at this time in the city, is it is it a good time for an internal candidate, somebody who's come up for the ranks, or do we need a new person to come in and shake things up and, and be a reformer? And I'm not saying those things are always mutually exclusive, but the interim chief is... Carmen Best, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I talked about this with uh, criminal justice reporter Steve Militich uh, a few weeks ago uh, in detail. But, you know, she, she said, Best has said, she's a long timer at the Seattle Police Department. She said she's interested in the job. So, you know, Kathleen O'Toole was very much an outsider. And uh, what Ed Murray felt like the city needed and others felt like the city needed at that point. Is this going to be a different scenario? We just don't know yet. But but police chief isn't the only big position that Durkin has to fill. Uh, she recently, uh, you know, the city has parted ways with with Larry Weiss, who is the highest, you know, the, if the police chief is is potentially the most important, uh, uh, you know, department head in the city, City Light is also important, and it's, it's, it's the highest paid position. So Larry Weiss was the CEO and general manager of City Light for, I think, less than two years, and he's out. So she has to find somebody to run that. Uh, utility. City Light always seems to find its way into the news. I mean, not always for good reasons. You know, you've got, of course, rate issues always with with rate payers. You've got, you know, service issues, billing issues. And then, you know, it's a big bureaucracy. And we've reported in recent years on, I don't know, sort of interesting things that have happened, not with Larry Weiss necessarily, but his predecessor, for example, ran into trouble with, uh, you know, he, 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 he got a contract, a city paid contract to sort of boost his own self image. And, uh, so yeah, it's a big job, and you know, keeping the lights on and and uh, and getting people the service they need super important in everyday life for folks. And then a third really big position. Uh, so if police chief is is potentially the most important, city light is the highest paid. Well, the the director of the Department of Transportation might be the one that uh, it, often is most controversial, most incurs the most uh, most wrath from from people trying to get around a really congested city. Right. Drivers, pedestrians, you know, buses, bicyclists, they're all sort of competing for attention. And, you know, the, the tension between I want to get to where I go fast and the tension between others saying I, I want to get to where I go alive. And we should say, you know, um, a lot of this gets into city spending, too. Um, I believe that you just reported today and people can check it out, seattletimes.com. And also this is going to be in the, in the Sunday newspaper um, the city has been on kind of a spending spree. We've had a lot of tax revenues. We've had some population growth, but the city's grown much faster. And Dan, I think you reported that the uh, speaking of the department, Seattle Department of Transportation actually led the pack in the increases. Yeah, just a little data point here that uh, in the five years from 2012 to 2016, Seattle uh, Seattle spending on transportation doubled uh, to. $276.9 million in 2016. And that's part of an overall pattern. Like basically every uh, department and city government saw its spending increase in many departments dramatically uh, over that time, uh, that five-year period. And that's what our story looks at. You know, the, the city is uh, uh, is raising more money and it's been able to pay its bills uh, because of voter-approved levies and because we're in a construction and an economic boom. So a lot of money is coming in. And a lot of money is going out. And they're, they're hiring a lot of staff, paying them more. You know, some data points that jumped out to me in that story, just as, you know, a reader, I didn't, I didn't work on it with you. Um, I mean, city population grew 11% over five years. Spending grew 40% in the, in the categories that you looked at, basically. We've got now nearly half, I think, of 
full-time city workers making $100,000 or more. Right. And, you know, another part of it is the city just doing more. It's gotten into a lot of new lines of business to try to help people as the city grows and and uh, as new problems emerge, you know, from a new Office of Labor Standards to help um, oversee the city's landmark minimum wage that we mentioned, to a new Department of Education Early Learning to supervise the, new, the city's new subsidized preschool program, to a new Office of Immigrant and Refugee Affairs to uh, try to help people who are new to this country and new to the city. Right. So I think that's something we'll be watching in the, in the, year, in the year to come, and um, both the amount of city spending whether it's being done effective and, of course, you know, the types of new services that are provided. That's a wrap for episode 63 of The Overcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to KNKX for having us in the studio again. If you support the independent, locally-owned journalism that makes this podcast possible, please drive by seattletimes.com backslash support and uh, hit us up with a with a subscription. Yeah, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at dbeekman, at jim underscore bruner. Email us at cltimesovercast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Uh, if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. That always helps. And until next week, have a cloudy day.